I should take this morning and just simply share the gospel message. You know, for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that message is a tremendous cause for rejoicing. Uh, you know, there's a Christian hymn that has been written that expresses that. I love to tell the story. Uh, and, and I just never get tired of hearing it over and over again. There's also another reason to share the gospel from time to time, even in a congregation where most assuredly uh, nearly all of you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps all of you do. I was talking with Pastor Hector a few weeks ago about the series that I was in regarding the assurance of salvation. And he told me about a fellow in the uh, Spanish Central District that had come from uh, Mexico about 25 years ago, uh, had come into our district, uh, was involved in church, uh, got, got involved in leadership, um, became a lay pastor so that he would fill the pulpit in the pastor's absence, was an elder in his uh, church uh, leadership team and uh, involved in district ministry and whatever. And about a year or so ago, he became uh, quite ill. And in the course of calling for the elders to come and anoint and pray for him, as he was examining his heart, uh, the scripture says, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so he was going through that process and realized for the first time that he had never truly trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and had a personal relationship with him, knew all about the Lord, knew all about the church, could deliver a fine message, but in the course of that uh, examination, realized that he had not made that transition of personally trusting Christ for the forgiveness of sin and coming to life eternal. There's stories like that that abound in many different places and over much time. Uh, sometimes people just kind of slide in and uh, get cozy with the redeemed, with the body of Christ, and somehow they miss that moment of personal decision. It is important that you make a decision to invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sin, and to make that commitment to Him personally to follow Him as your Lord and your Savior all the days of your life. That decision has to be made. You can't just grow into it, inherit it, or assimilate it by osmosis. You have to come to a personal relationship. So this morning, as I do indeed wrap up this series on assurance, I want to go back to the beginning and talk about coming to Christ in the first place for salvation, the good news. In Luke chapter 15, 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn there and kind of follow along as I hit the high spots of this chapter. But Luke chapter uh, 15, Jesus, it seems, was always at odds with, of all people, the religious leaders of his day. These were not religious leaders of another religion. They were the religious leaders of Judaism, his own heritage and faith. But they were kind of stuffed shirt and holier than thou and caught up in their traditions and not in a personal relationship. And so uh, they were challenging him. Uh, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near, the scripture says, to listen. He had something they wanted to hear. And the religious leaders challenged him and said, what kind of a spiritual man would spend his time with tax gatherers and sinners of all people to spend your time with? And Jesus kind of paused in the action and he told them three stories. The first story he told them was of a shepherd who had a flock of a hundred sheep. And he said, which of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost, which of you would not leave the ninety-nine and go in search of that lost sheep? And when you found him, would you not gather your neighbors and rejoice? This sheep of mine was lost, but now I found him. And he said, you would gather him up and put him around your shoulders, and you would tell all the neighbors that you had found your lost sheep. He said there was a woman who had lost a coin. Now, coins in those days could represent quite a lot of wealth. I mean... Our coins only go up to about 50 cents, usually, and uh, then they stop there, and you have to have more than one. But in those days, you could have a coin that was worth a whole day's wage or a week's wage or even more, and this woman had lost a coin, and apparently it was very important to her. And he said she searched the house over, she looked everywhere, and finally she found that lost coin, and she called all of her neighbors and said, I found my coin. And there was great rejoicing. And he used those two stories to segue into the familiar story of the prodigal son. When he said a man had two sons. The younger of the two came to him one day and said, Dad, I would like my inheritance now. Uh, I, I want to have an opportunity to, to get started right away on the things I'd like to do with my inheritance. Now, I don't know how you would feel if that happened to you, but I, let me kind of put this in ordinary common terms for you. Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I want my money now. I don't know how much longer it's going to take. You look pretty healthy to me. So uh, why don't you just sell off part of the farm and get rid of one of the barns and turn it into cash and, and give me a pocket full of money. Uh, let me have what's mine now. Don't you know that 
that would just kind of set you back on your heels a bit, to, to have that kind of impatience and, and insolence uh, in, in one of your own children. But that's exactly what happened in this case, and it's analogous, by the way, to those of us who have turned our backs on God. And so the father liquidated the, some of his assets and turned it into cash and gave it to this uh, young son. And the Bible says after a few days, or after a period of time, he went off to a distant land. And he squandered every penny on wild living. You know, you, you read between the lines, and some of it is not even between the lines. It's stated very obviously. He spent his money on drinking and gambling and prostitutes and partying and had nothing left. Now he's far from home. He's broke and destitute. All the friends he had when he had money have deserted him. He finally found a job slopping the pigs. And one day as he's going through this grueling mess of slopping the pigs, it comes to his mind that they're better off than he is. And then he thinks about his father's house. And he says, even... The slaves in my father's house are doing better than I'm doing. And he started thinking about how to approach his dad. He crafted a speech that he was going to give. And he began a journey. And when he got back home, he said to himself, I'm going to say to my father, I have, I have sinned. I have really messed up. And I'm sorry and I'm not even asking to come back as your son. What I really am willing to do is just be a slave in the house. If I could just have a place to sleep and some food to eat, I'll be happy with that. And Jesus said he was on his way home, and as he got near his house, his father saw him coming in the distance. And the implication is that dad had been watching for the day that he would come home. And he ran to meet him. And the son was ready to deliver his speech. But the father interrupted him and embraced him and called for the servants to put a robe on him and put a ring on his finger and said, go get that fatted calf we've been saving I wonder if Dad hadn't been holding it back for this occasion. Let's have a feast. Let's have singing and dancing. This son of mine was lost. And now he has been found. In Luke chapter 15, there's a curious passage. The King James Bible misleads us just a tad. It says that there is rejoicing in the, among the angels when one sinner comes to repentance. But actually, the Greek language of that, and we were talking about that this week in the office, the, the actual language of that verse is that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Guess who's rejoicing? The Father 
is rejoicing that a lost sinner has come home. He's brought out the robe and the ring and is ready to kill the fatted calf and have a party because the lost one has come home. Jesus tells these stories to illustrate for those Sadducees and Pharisees and for us who would read it 2,000 years later that it is the passion and the heart of the Father to find the lost, that He searches for those who are away from Him with the diligence of a shepherd that's lost a sheep or, or a woman who's lost a very valuable coin. And when he finds that lost one, he rejoices like the father of the prodigal and is thrilled that he has come back. God is after lost people. And Jesus, in fact, declares his own mission in Luke 19.10, saying that his desire and his mission is to seek and save that which was lost. That that's his driving ambition in this earth is to find the lost and bring them back to the Father. In fact, Paul, some years later, writes to Timothy and he explains to him in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that it is the will of God that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, some people have erroneously interpreted that verse to imply universalism. You know what I mean by that? Everyone will get saved in the end. But that's not what the verse says. Uh, in fact, there are two words in the Greek language for will. Um, there's one word that when God says it, he means he will do it. He is omnipotent. He has all power. He will do it. But there's another word that really expresses his desire. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it means he longs for it to happen. You say, what, what, is, it, what is the deal with God having a desire that's not fulfilled? But the scripture says it is his desire that every single person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But we know that that's not going to happen. Jesus explained it this way. He said, when we look at the world, there are two kinds of people, and they're on two different roads. He said, there is a wide, broad road that is smooth and easy, and there are a lot of people on it, but it leads to destruction. And he said, there's another road that is narrow, and the gate is tiny, and there are only a few that find that road, but that one leads to life eternal. God, in the mystery of salvation, in the moment of our awakening and of explaining to us the message of Jesus Christ, gives us a legitimate choice. He longs for everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth and come home to Him. But... Not everyone will make that decision. There are terms that we use that many people in the church today are trying to get rid of. 
they sound old-fashioned. They conjure up uh, ideas of uh, southern Bible thumpers and pulpit pounders. Words like lost and saved. But you know what? They're very good words. They're biblical words. Why are we lost and what does that mean? The word lost means a couple of things. First of all, it means that our relationship with God has been lost. It's broken. We use that word. We might say something like, I lost my best friend over a foolish argument. And what we mean is, we had a spat and it didn't get healed. And as a consequence, the relationship is strained and fractured. And the closeness isn't there anymore. Something has been lost that was very valuable. And we're lost to God in that sense. Our relationship with him has been fractured. It's broken without restoration. And we describe that as being in a condition of being lost. But even perhaps more profound is that that fractured relationship, if it remains unmended, means that we are lost in sin. And that if we die in that condition, we will face him one day with our guilt upon us. And the only destiny is eternal separation from God, which is lost forever. And so that word lost is a very significant word. And we're lost, the Bible says, because every single person have sinned, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. The Bible's very plain about that. There is none righteous, not one. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to to his own way. David goes so far as to say, not only am I sinful, but I was born in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. He does not mean that the act of conception was in itself sinful. God is the one who designed sexuality and procreation. That's not the problem. But the problem is that every child that is born is born with an infection called sin. And that sin becomes a part of us at the moment of conception. Even before we're born, our natures are damaged. And as a consequence of that, uh, we are born sinners. And as soon as we're old enough to begin to express our own will and interest, we do that. Those of you that are parents, you don't even have to be a parent. You just have to watch kids for a little while. You don't have to teach them to be bad. You do have to teach them to be good. They're bad all by themselves. They figure out how to be self-centered, selfish, rebellious and uh, insisting on their own way at the youngest of age because they have a sin nature. 
Some people don't understand that. And if they do understand it, they think it's somehow unfair. Why is it that God would punish someone who can't help how they are? What, what is it that if a person is born with this, makes them responsible? And friends, we need to understand the nature of sin. Paul says in Romans 5:12 that through one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. So all have sinned and death has passed to everyone because of that one man's sin. Oftentimes I ask this question of people when they come before our licensing and ordaining committee. I want to make sure that they understand the lostness of the lost and the reason why lost people are lost. And one illustration that I will sometimes use to explain this, we understand that children can be born with infections that their parents have. In fact, the most notable of those is the HIV virus or AIDS. We know that all over the world, particularly in countries and continents where there is a high prevalence of sexual promiscuity, that children are often infected in the wombs of their mother because the HIV virus is transmitted through the placenta and those children are born with AIDS. And the world understands that. They pull out all the stops to try to find a cure and to try to help these children. Our, our sense of um, sadness is is magnified when we look at a child that through no fault of its own now has a fatal disease. But we recognize that that child has a disease and that it is fatal and it needs some kind of cure if this child is going to have the hope of having any kind of life. It's odd that we can understand that in the biological sense and we completely miss the point in the spiritual realm. Far more happened in the garden when Adam and Eve made that choice to sin. God said in the day that you make that choice, you will surely die. And that death was, was not just their eventual physical death, but it was their instant separation from God and the pollution of their life with a sin nature that they are now transmitting to their offspring. And ever since Adam, every single human being has been born with the infection of sin. It's a part of our nature. We come with it. And as soon as we get old enough, we begin to manifest the symptoms. Symptoms like doing it my own way, getting my own will, shaking my fist in the face of authority, saying no. How many children learn to say no before they learn to say yes? I don't think it's just because it's a simpler word to form. <laughs> it's easier to rebel because it's built into the nature. Everyone has sinned. 
And the Bible says that very plainly. David says, I, I was conceived in sin. I was born in sin. And I have been a sinner ever since. Making my personal choices in opposition to God. That's what Isaiah meant when he said, all of us have turned astray. Every one of us has gone our own way. Every human being is lost in sin. Jesus said to Nicodemus in that great conversation that is recorded in John chapter 3, we quote John 3.16 so often, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then we stop there and forget the next couple of verses which explain, as Jesus tells to Nicodemus, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world because the world is condemned already. The reality is is that every human being on this planet has a spiritual disease called sin. And you say, well, how could it be our fault then and deserve punishment? Shouldn't God give us a pass? Shouldn't he just overlook it? But we also recognize the reality, if I may use again the illustration of HIV, we overlook sometimes the reality that unless there is a cure, those children are going to die. They're not going to survive. And sin is a fact of human life. And unless there's a cure, there will be spiritual death eternally. There's no alternative to that. But I ask the question, how bad is bad and how good is good? Other objections that people have to the gospel is, I'm really not bad. In fact, one of the most frequent phrases ever heard at a funeral is, he was a good man. She was a good person. We, we look at human beings and if they're not serial killers or rapists or armed robbers or terrorists, we tend to think that they're good. They keep the rules. They follow the laws. They do their best. They try to help their neighbor when they can. They show uh, maybe signs of compassion and uh, they look out for each other. And in fact, when you look at the human race, quite honestly, there is a lot to be admired. People do contribute an awful lot one to another. And there are people in the world who are genuine philanthropists and they're altruistic. They want to, to be of help to their fellow man. But God doesn't grade on the curve. He has a standard. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus stopped him right at the outset. And he said, Why are you calling me good? 
There is no one good but God. Now, Jesus was not (laughs) denying that he was good, but what he was doing was questioning the man's insight. He said, what do you see in me that causes you to make that attribute toward me? Why are you calling me good? And then from the words of Jesus, there is none good but God. I think the rich young ruler saw in Jesus that divinity. But Jesus made it plain that there's no such thing in the ultimate sense as a good human being. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow. But as he explains in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the law, Jesus tells us what's behind the obvious rules. He picked five of the commandments that relate to interpersonal relationships. He took the term of lying and he reduced it simply to not always speaking the plain truth. He took adultery and reduced it to having lust in your heart. He took other of the issues such as murder and reduced it to being angry with another human being. He took theft and reduced it to having simply covetousness or jealousy or envy. In other words, Jesus took the outward behaviors and he reduced them to the inner attitudes. And he said, out of the heart of man proceeds the evil. And this is your trouble. It's inside of you. And it's coming out in terms of attitudes that work their way into expression. If you doubt that interpretation, I take you to the last verse of Matthew 5, verse 48, when Jesus reduced the whole thing to one summary statement. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if you're like me, the first thing you say is, no way. That's not happening. And that's the point. It's not happening. There's no way. I don't care if you're only seven years old. You've already got too much history. You're already in trouble. You cannot be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. But that is the standard. That's why Paul concludes in Romans 3, 10 to 20, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who on their own seeks for God. There's none that does good. There's no one that can stand before God and say, I deserve to have eternal life. I have lived a good life. Because the Bible says that God, in His infinite holiness, cannot look upon sin. And yet, we started out by saying that He loves us. 
He loves us. Longs for us to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Wants us to spend eternity with him. What is the solution? John 3.16 says that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says the, the very return of Jesus Christ is being delayed because God is not willing that any should perish. He wants to give everyone a chance to come to repentance. And yet the Bible says that God will by no means clear the guilty. And Hebrews says it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. Jesus summarized it this way in speaking to his disciples at that last supper. <clears throat> and he said to them, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is a third major stumbling block for people outside of Jesus Christ. Why would God be such a bigot? Why would not he let sincere people, on the basis of their own religious beliefs, have a, have a relationship with him? What, what's wrong with the Baha'i Temple there on the shores of North Chicago that have 12 doors and you can enter through any religion of your choice and end up in the same room. Why doesn't that work? Why doesn't a vaccine for smallpox prevent AIDS? That makes sense to us. We understand that. It's the wrong cure. It can't fix the problem. It's a, it's a different application. We don't need a smallpox vaccine. We don't need the sayings of Confucius to solve our sin problem. We don't need Buddhism to change our philosophy. We don't need Islam to fix our moral issues. There's only one person that can do this. And that person is Jesus Christ. There is no one else that can take away our sin. There is one mediator, the scripture says, between God and men. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can connect us. He himself says, I am the way, the truth. And the life, no one can come to the Father unless they come by me. Peter explains in the book of Acts that Jesus is the only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's no other way because there's no other cure. You can't take a laxative to fix a heart attack. It doesn't work. You need the specific cure for the specific problem. And the Bible says that our problem is a sin problem, and that the only cure is a sinless Savior who went to the cross and died there, who owed no penalty, who had no guilt. But he went to that cross and he died there 
for your sin and for my sin. Because his holy and righteous and precious blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. His precious and righteous blood was able to be shed for the covering of my sin and of yours. And according to the scripture, as he rose from the grave and entered the heavenlies, he sprinkled that blood offering, as it were, before the Father. And the scripture says that the wrath of God was satisfied. Because the blood has covered our sin. And so, friends, it is so terribly important that we make that personal decision to trust Jesus Christ, to believe that what he did on the cross is all that I need to be restored to a right relationship with the Father. To believe that he is the only one that can do that. And to come to him in humility and repentance. To bow our knee before him and say, you are rightfully my Lord and my Savior. And I repent of my sin and I take you to be my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. I want you to fix me. I want you to heal me. I want you to cleanse me. I want you to restore me. I want to come back to God. I want to be saved from the wrath to come. I want to be saved from myself. I want to be saved to be a part of your family and to live with you eternally. That's the decision I need to make. If you've never made that decision, you need to do that. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself in the person of his spirit, is here looking for you like that woman looking for a lost coin, like that shepherd looking for a lost sheep. God is watching for the moment that you would turn and come back like that father waiting on the prodigal. And when you do, when you do, he is ready to receive you with open arms, to put a robe on your shoulders, to put a ring on your finger that says, my father's household. He is willing to receive you back home. If you turn from the way you've been going and repent of your sin, and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is no other way. And for those of you that are my brothers and sisters in Christ, we should never be guilty of bigotry. We should never be guilty of any kind of religious pride. We should never be guilty of pointing the finger at others with derision. We have the greatest good news that's ever been heard. Jesus Christ has died to save sinners. And I'm one of them. And he has saved me. Someone has described sharing the gospel message as simply one beggar telling another where he found bread.
We're all in the same boat. We all need the same cure. There's a way out. His name is Jesus. Will you take him? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the clear simplicity of the message of Jesus Christ. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sin away. And that one is Jesus Christ. Praise your holy name, Lord Jesus. We give you glory. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for life eternal. Thank you for bringing me back home to the Father's house. In Jesus' name, amen.